0: This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Andrea Dukakis. The University of Colorado Boulder's athletic department finds itself once again at the center of a Title IX controversy. Title IX is a federal law that covers gender equity on college campuses. The CU case involves domestic violence allegations against a former assistant football coach. Several officials have been disciplined as a result. Scott Lewis is a Denver attorney and co-founder of the Association for Title IX. Nine administrators. Part of his job is to help schools comply with the federal law. Scott, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Andrew. This is all happening just as the football team is returning to national prominence. Uh, the case involves allegations by a former girlfriend against assistant football coach Joe Tumpkin. He was eventually fired. She says he physically assaulted her repeatedly over the course of three years. Why did those charges fall under Title Nine?
1: Well, that's a great question. And technically speaking, it's an arguable question. Uh, Title IX applies to gender equity, of course, uh, and sexual harassment and sexual misconduct and gender-based violence all fall under it as well. The arguable part, part about it, Andrea, is that it has to impact the educational programs on campus. Since this happened off campus, the person who was the victim was not affiliated with the institution, an institution under Title IX would have to say, gosh, there's a chance that conduct could impact our campus. There could be an effect of that discriminatory or violent acts on our campus. Here, it doesn't seem that unbelievable that somebody who would engage in that level of violence might do the same to somebody on our campus. But campuses mostly will assert jurisdiction, if you will, over those off-campus incidents, even when the victim's not affiliated, in the interest of doing the right thing and right. realizing that, that leaving somebody on campus and the employer as a student who engage in that level of violence sends a message that maybe it's okay.
0: And could potentially be a hazard on campus. Right.
1: The hazards part of it, the other part is that climate, that if we say this is an okay behavior for people who are affiliated with our community, what's the message to our community? That those behaviors are Okay. <laughs>
0: The alleged victim called head football coach Mike McIntyre and told him about Tumpkin's actions. Wouldn't police or other law enforcement be brought into something like this instead of the athletic department?
1: Not necessarily by the school or by any employee of the school. It's the victim's choice whether they want to notify law enforcement or not. In this case, she chose to notify The school, the employer. So what the employer does have a responsibility to do is to notify the people on campus who are the appropriate officials to decide, are we going to assert jurisdiction? What steps might we take? So here you'd be thinking about your Title IX coordinator, your human resources department, um, obviously other upper administrators who can make those determinations. The main thing is to reach back out to the party who reported it, in this case, the victim of uh, domestic violence, and say – or intimate partner violence, my apologies – and say, gosh, you know you can go to the police. You know you can take advantage of these community resources to support you. And here's what we're going to do. Hmm. And you want to make sure she's av- is knowledgeable and – able to avail herself of all three resources.
0: It sounds like in in this case that didn't happen. Um, There was an outside investigation that concluded that officials failed to follow up on the girlfriend's allegations. And last week, CU Board of Regents announced that CU Boulder Chancellor Phil DiStefano would be suspended for 10 days without pay. He's serving that suspension now. Athletic Director Rick George and Coach Mike McIntyre will each make a $100,000 contribution to domestic violence groups. And critics say the punishment just isn't enough. What's your take on that?
1: Well, the institution has the ability to choose what's the appropriate discipline Um, when you're making those choices. And I'm certainly not going to make an excuse or an indictment for or of the institution. But what I do want to say is. When you're looking at it, you want to say, gosh, what is in line with what we've done historically with our employees who have failed to report? Um, What do we think, given the nature of this particular incident, is appropriate? And we want to tailor it to what might make this not happen again. Mm. Um, Certainly, some people would say, oh, they didn't report it. They should all be fired. What we find, though, is at times some of our faculty, some of our staff are aware of incidents of intimate partner violence, sexual assault. And they try to either manage it themselves and try to keep that relationship with a student even. So in this, that case, the victim is ours. Mm-hmm. And they don't report it, but we rarely terminate in that case. Um, in fact, in some cases, there's no disciplinary action at all. It's follow-up to say, gosh, from now on, make sure you understand. So on one hand, some could say, this is pretty heavy-handed discipline. On the other hand, some could say, no, these are the highest-profile people. They should have known better, and the discipline should have been more severe maybe higher fines, maybe some areas of suspension. Uh, You're going to have arguments on either side that are actually pretty reasonable.
0: And after the decision, CU President Bruce Benson said, part of the rationale for the discipline was that the three officials had no ill intent when they mishandled the allegations. Uh, You work with universities to help them comply with Title IX. How often is that used as a defense?
1: Um, Well, we do look at the intent. You know, Whenever I have any employee or any faculty member who fails to follow their responsibilities to report an issue of gender-based discrimination, intimate partner violence, sexual assault, stalking, all the stuff covered under Title IX, frankly, we ask the same questions, Andrew, and they fail to report a student who's self-injurious you know, the liability that kicks in there. So what we look at is why didn't you do it? Were you well-intended and you were trying to help and manage this yourself and maintain some relationship? Were you ill-intended to quote the president and saying, "Ooh, we want to cover this up? Or were you just kind of, gosh, I don't know if this really is something I should report or not report. And that's sort of, uh, I'm not really sure. I think one of the dilemmas here is the optics. Mm -hmm. You know, this, you don't report and the timing of it with the bowl game coming up and the fact that it's an athletics person and it's one of our coaches and the program is returning to promise. There's that optics piece that you might want to err on the side of caution and just tell. I I always kind of advise our clients when I'm talking to faculty, staff, coaches, anybody, when in doubt, tell somebody.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, days after the discipline was issued, the Board of Regents approved an almost $15 million contract extension for McIntyre. Um, And you could argue that slapping him with a $100,000 fine isn't that big a deal given what he makes. Critics say it's an example of college sports being placed above everything else. And as you said, it, it doesn't look good. Is there a good explanation?
1: For the extension of the contract?
0: For sort of this... You know the fine um, versus this this large contract where he is getting a contract renewed at the same time where you know this is all going on.
1: Right. I think what you, you, there's there's going to be two separate analyses here. One is that contract extension is probably in the works. In fact, I'd say most likely in the works long before all this was happening. These are extensions that go on. There's negotiations that happen. Again, the timing of it, one might think about the optics and go, gosh, we just disciplined this guy and now we extend the contract. You know, should we have waited, should we have done it before? What might be the better term? That's a great PR question. The reality though is we have faculty members who get tenure after they fail to report something. We mm-hmm. have employees who remain employed and then later are promoted. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. Certainly you would think about a hundred thousand versus fifteen million and start asking larger questions. Right.
0: You're with CPR's Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're talking about the latest Title IX controversy at CU Boulder. It involves domestic violence allegations against a former assistant football coach. We're speaking with Scott Lewis. He's a Denver attorney and co founder of the Association for Title IX Administrators. Again, this isn't the first time uh, CU's athletic department has been part of a Title IX controversy. In 2007, the university reached a settlement of almost $3 million. It was uh, two women who said they were sexually assaulted by football players at a party. How often do universities find themselves dealing with repeated incidents uh, related to Title IX?
1: Well, I think what you're starting to see now, and actually the Simpson case, the case you referenced, uh, along with a case out of Georgia and a case out of North Carolina really started a ball rolling that sort of began to turn the tide. Um, and this slow evolution of athletics away from cultures that existed that were non-equitable, um, created environments that were demeaning and sometimes abusive towards women, both in and outside the athletics department, that worm is turning more and more and more. I think, uh, Certainly, having that history behind it is not helpful, mm-hmm. certainly from looking, again, from the outside in. You see what's going on at Baylor right now, um, another school with a, a now a now pretty well-established record, track record of these types of incidents and then other incidents that are uh, continuing to haunt Baylor. We're going to have to see how the institution responds. I think um, if I were giving the institution advice, I would say, okay, we have what happened in seven. We have what's happening now, the, the aftermath of the 07 case. We have this come up right now. What's that commitment level going to be to really changing the culture, not just in the athletics department, the institution. We know the institution put a pretty fair amount of money toward their Title IX programming as an institution. I think this begs the question, what's going to happen within the athletic department and what's going to happen within the football team? Uh, What's the message to the young men on that team?
0: Yeah, how much does this have to do with people just not understanding Title IX?
1: I think it has to do with the people not understanding how small messages can seep in and set in this notion that um, I am better than you because I play this sport or because I am a man or because of my sex or race or whatever, right? Once you have those little messages that continue to get reinforced, then it's okay for this to happen. You have the situation where, well, gosh, that guy did that. It must be okay because the school didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And there's no reinforcing that message. So not just helping them understand Title IX, but helping them understand consent and equity and dignity and what harassment is and how people get on the path to increased harassment.
0: I want to go back to this contract extension. McIntyre is the highest paid state employee in Colorado. Should he be held to a higher standard?
1: Should he be held to a higher standard on the basis of pay? That's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know if we're always going to equate higher standards of pay to higher expectations. You know, the people who make the most money in the world aren't always the best examples. Um, Sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. Um, The issue of being held to a higher standard in athletics, uh, both as coaches and as athletes, you find yourself sort of being held to a bit of a higher standard because of your profile, um, mm. and your representation of in the institution. Um, he is not the only head coach who's the highest paid state employee in the United States by a long right. shot. If you look at right. Saban and Meyer and, uh, you know, some of these other guys out there. Um, but I, I think with, with the old Spider-Man rule, right, with great power comes great responsibility. So I think what we're going to be looking to is is a coach who takes that responsibility and takes that salary and says, I'm going to be at the front of all these other people. What's he going to do to say, gosh, what I did was wrong, and here's how I'm going to change it beyond the $100,000 donation?
0: Is more training needed than is being done right now?
1: Unquestionably. Um, College campuses are doing more than they've ever done before, um, but more needs to be done.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Scott Lewis is a Denver attorney and the co-founder of the Association for Title IX Administrators. Title IX is a federal law that covers gender equity in education. He joined us to discuss discuss the recent case involving domestic violence allegations at the University of Colorado Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you haven't heard the term coal rolling, it's when people tweak their diesel pickups so they belch black smoke on walkers, cyclists, and other drivers. Some do it to be funny, others as a form of political protest. Earlier this month, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper signed a bill that cracks down on coal rolling. State Representative Joanne Janal of Fort Collins sponsored the measure. She joins us by phone. Joanne, welcome to the show.
2: Uh, thank you Andrea it's a, it's an, a pleasure and an honor to be here
0: this bill makes coal rolling a traffic violation and violators are fined a hundred dollars in recent years there's been a lot more attention to the practice of coal rolling why is that
2: I uh, think because uh, there are uh, there was a bill that I brought forth in 2016 that actually uh, at least in this state, uh, brought more attention to this exhibition of thick black smoke. And when people realized what uh, coal rolling was, even myself included, um, we've had it done to us uh, numerous times, not knowing exactly what that that practice was. And so um, I think with Bringing forth uh, legislation uh, in 2016 and twice now in this in this 2017 session, uh, I think people are more aware of what's going on.
0: You mentioned that you've been the victim of this kind of thing. Tell us about that.
2: Uh, prior to knowing what this was and uh, learning about it, uh, I was uh, on several state roads uh And I did have uh, you know my state uh, legislator license plates on, but I was in back of uh, certain trucks and uh got thick black smoke in uh obscuring my view and I didn't realize what exactly that was now i do I've also had it happen to me coming home from session uh, on a friday from um for the weekend and um it's happened to me right here in, in Fort Collins. So I know what it is, and I think a lot more people, because of you know a lot of, 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 of uh, radio shows and newspaper articles, understand what this is now and are saying, hey, this has happened to me as well.
0: You're in Fort Collins. Is the problem particularly bad
2: there? Well, this is where the, the issue originated from, from basically our police force. Uh, there, they were having issues with, uh, you know, a, a famous area that a lot of our, you know, young high school students and, uh, folks like to drive up and down College Avenue on a Friday or a Saturday night. And, uh, one of the issues was this, uh, thick black smoke that was not only blown on pedestrians or cars, but on the police themselves. Uh, and they could not, uh, Uh, because of the safety hazard, uh, chased them immediately to try to stop them. And uh, um, so there was no tool in the toolbox for this particular type of behavior.
0: Here's uh, Lieutenant Craig Horton with the Fort Collins Police Department. He was one of those urging legislators to do something. Um, And he's seen himself uh, coal rolling problems on downtown streets where he says students like to cruise.
3: We, you know, really wanted a tool to be able to address that. I think it mostly came from the downtown um, folks, especially the ones that are at their restaurants and the restaurants themselves, just saying, "Hey, we need some help here. This is a horrible night. It can ruin your whole night of a dining experience on a patio if uh, someone you know drives by it and engages in this behavior."
0: So, coal rolling is clearly annoying, but what about health and safety concerns?
2: A very big health concern um, for people who have respiratory issues, COPD. Uh, in fact, uh, my prime sponsor in the Senate, uh, Senator Corum, who um, uh, really didn't uh, understand what it was about. I believe until he had his own constituents, and I think members of his own family who have respiratory issues, and it was done to them where they couldn't breathe and they were actually scared to the point where they went to the hospital. Um, And it is a safety uh, and health issue because uh, it could cause some very bad effects uh, intentionally uh, uh, that could cause, if you have asthma uh, and other respiratory issues, this could be a health risk. And even the American Cancer Society uh is linked has said that there is a link to exposure to diesel exhaust and lung cancer so um you know older people pedestrians walking just out enjoying the day where this is done for fun uh, does and possibly could cause some very serious health effects in these in these innocent people walking on a sidewalk.
0: And and you mentioned um, Don Corum. He's a Republican from Montrose who sponsored this with you. Um, Lieutenant Horton, who we just heard from, um, says based on what he learned from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, coal rolling is a health and safety concern, but not an environmental one.
3: Rolling coal, um, because of the sort of the um, short bursts of that, has little impact on our overall In uh, environmental air quality in the city, for instance, but it has a tremendous effect on the um, people that are um, within that. So a bicyclist, for instance, that um, has, um, you know, coal rolled on them or uh, a restaurateur or a uh, person standing on a corner that, um, you know, someone engages in this behavior and blows all that smoke on them. There is a uh, health effect, but Um, the particles are so heavy that it's a negligible effect on our overall air quality, but certainly a health effect for the
2: people in the area.
0: Coal rolling has been used as a snarky political statement. What's an example of that?
2: Um, A very good example of that happened uh, when uh, 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 former President Bill Clinton came uh, prior to the 2016 elections in November to Fort Collins, And there was a line uh, uh, waiting to see him outside of uh, the New Belgium uh, brewery where he was giving a speech. Uh, And there were coal rollers uh, that basically um, uh, puffed their smoke all around the people standing in line. Uh, That's one very good example of uh, their, uh, uh, I guess, way of saying uh, they're against the people standing in line that were waiting to hear Clinton speak. I think that that was a very good example of how our our folks out there uh, can make some political statements. They also do it to Priuses uh, because of the fact that they may be a more environmentally uh, better car than maybe some other uh, trucks and cars that are on the road um, but I think that uh you know there's a number of ways that these folks make statements they they do it to motorcyclists they do it to bicyclists as uh as lieutenant Horton had said uh but I think it's really unsafe and it's uh I agree with uh, lieutenant Horton that uh, you know the the people that do it are not affecting our, are not affecting our environment. But they are. Um, uh, but they are. Um, uh, uh, but it's they a are safety,
0: harassing. a health concern for folks, and, har- and, and it, it's harassing folks.
2: Um, and it's harassing people who are trying to make a political statement, and and so are they, I guess, in the same time.
0: This is CPR's Colorado Matters. We're talking about coal rolling. It's when people rig a diesel vehicle so it belches thick black exhaust. It can be a road hazard and sometimes an angry political statement. It's now illegal in Colorado. State Representative Joanne Janal is with us. She sponsored the law that passed with bipartisan support. Coal rolling isn't illegal nationwide, but tampering with a vehicle to skirt emissions requirements is a violation of the Clean Air Act. Why wasn't that enough?
2: Well, that's a federal act, and um, the police needed something to be able to work with here in the state of Colorado and in the various cities where this is taking place. Um, And I think what we're trying to do is is not put people in jail. Uh, we're trying to to maybe stop this annoying harassing behavior. And the first bill that was brought forth uh, in 2016 had a thirty five dollars fine and two points off a license. Well, with a lot of negotiation, especially with the uh, Colorado motor carriers, um, and various other groups, um, we got it down to a uh, hundred dollar fine and no points. Hmm. Um, I think what we're trying to do is is just trying to curtail this this behavior, and uh, it's it's a negotiation that worked. In fact, there was no opposition to this bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had various organizations all the way from Colorado counties to. Uh, La Plata County Sheriff's Office, to um, Bicycle Colorado, Fort Collins Bicycles, the police, uh, Fort Collins Police, and various downtown business associations, as well as um, uh, various folks from um, uh, other cities who said, yes, this is happening here, and we need to do something about it because, um, you know, it's just annoying people and keeping them away from our businesses. It's hurting businesses. And so um, it it was a, um, I think it's a reasonable start if it continues and it escalates. I think that, you know, that more stiffer fines could be uh, could occur.
0: Joanne, I'm going to interrupt here. Um, Our time is up. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: Well, thank you. And uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, this, bill is, uh, this bill is a great bill for public safety. So thank you.
0: Thanks. Joanne Janal is a Democrat representing Fort Collins in the Colorado House of Representatives. She sponsored legislation cracking down on coal rolling. Colorado is one of 32 states where the death penalty is legal, but only one person has been executed in a half century. Michael Radlett examines why in his new book, It's an interesting time in the state with some lawmakers trying to eliminate the death penalty and a governor who no longer supports it. Radlett also zeroes in on some of the state's most notorious executions. He's a sociology professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and a death penalty scholar. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrea. Tell us about uh, the last person to be executed in the state.
4: That was a man named Gary Davis, executed in nineteen ninety seven. Nineteen ninety seven, correct? Uh, he and his wife were convicted of abducting and murdering a woman in Byers, uh, Colorado, and uh, he was on death row for about ten years before he was executed.
0: And before that, no one had been executed in many years, 30 years before that.
4: Um, yeah, it's been right now 50 years and two weeks. The last execution before Gary Davis was Luis Manji, June 2nd, 1967. And Manji was not only the last person executed in Colorado in that era, he was the last person executed in the United States for 10 years. Nobody knew it at the time. Hmm. But after Manji was executed, there were a number of appeals that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 1972, the court invalidated all death penalty statutes around the country.
0: Hmm. And, and polls uh, show uh, public opinion in Colorado and elsewhere is, um, in the country is divided on the death penalty, though more people support it. Why does the state have the death penalty if it rarely uses it?
4: Well, first of all, more people only support it if not given an option. If given the option of life imprisonment without parole, which is the only option we've got, then the most recent polls show that a slight majority uh, support life without parole rather than the death penalty. Uh, Why do we have it? Uh, Three reasons. Number one is politics. Number two is politics. And number three is politics. It's a great way for uh, politicians or potential politicians to get their names in the newspapers. It's a great way to send a message that we're trying to be tough on crime. And it's a great way to simplify the needs of families of homicide victims to show that we really do care about them.
0: Uh, But it's important to note that many, many people in the state support the death penalty as the only just punishment for people who commit really heinous crimes.
4: Well, that's true that uh, whatever justice is, I mean, even if the person is executed, it doesn't really bring back the life that they took. So there's a debate about what justice really means. What does it mean, for example, for a man who kills 12 people at a theater, a man who by any measure is mentally ill? What does it mean for a person like Dexter Lewis who killed five people in a bar uh, in Denver and was uh, sentenced to uh, life without parole rather than the death penalty uh, in uh, 2015? What does justice mean for people who are mentally ill or people who have these long histories of child abuse?
0: You mentioned James Holmes and the Aurora theater shooter. He's the Aurora theater shooter and as being um, mentally insane, but it was ruled that he wasn't insane when he committed the crime.
4: Well, the legal definition of insanity is very, very narrow. Uh, Most people in Colorado probably could not name a person who has been found not guilty of a reason of insanity. I know my students, some of them will remember John Hinckley. But nobody else can name another case. So insanity, though, is not the same as severely mentally ill. And there's no question from any of the experts who testified in that case that Holmes was severely mentally ill.
0: Um, what does it say about capital punishment in Colorado that Holmes, who killed 12 people, didn't get the death penalty?
4: Well, the the uh, to get the death penalty, there not only has to be an act, that is there has to be a murder, but we have to do some kind of – estimate or measurement of the person's mental status, to be able to measure the person's criminal intent. Nobody, for example, would say that a, a a youngster, eight years old, who kills somebody would deserve the death penalty, though in times past, we have said that. Nobody would say anymore that a person with an IQ of 45 would deserve the death penalty. Again, uh, we have said that in the past. So uh, we have all sorts of issues of not, not only who did it, but whether or not the person possess the requisite criminal intent to warrant the death penalty.
0: In your book, you write about the case of Nathan Dunlap. He was convicted in 1993 of killing four people and injuring another at a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant in Aurora. He's one of three people currently on death row in Colorado. And Dunlap was scheduled for execution four years ago. But before that, Governor John Hickenlooper made a decision that surprised a lot of people. Tell us about that case. Sure.
4: Uh, Nathan Dunlap, uh, as you say, is one of three people on on Colorado's death row and he had pretty much exhausted all of his state and federal appeals and was ready for execution. Hickenlooper, I think, was very conflicted about the death penalty. He saw the arguments for it, saw saw it against it uh, and challenged the state to have a conversation about the death penalty while he – did not commute the sentence, he just basically put it on ice, so sort of I, a
0: temporary reprieve it's, is what it 's called it's a temporary reprieve,
4: and hickenlooper's leadership has now carried over to three other states, Pennsylvania, Oregon, and Washington, where the governors have done the same thing a temporary reprieve. Meanwhile, six or seven states in the last ten years have abolished the death penalty completely, so I think Hickenlooper was struck in 2009. There were a group of families of homicide victims in Colorado who took the lead in trying to abolish the death penalty, not because they didn't support the death penalty, but rather so much money is spent on it that they would rather spend that money on the 40% of homicides in Colorado that aren't even solved. They thought that that was a higher priority
0: interesting that you say it was leadership by Governor Hickenlooper because some people say he just sort of punted the decision off to the the next governor perhaps.
4: Well, perhaps. We don't know what's in his mind right now and he'll still be governor for another, what, year year and a half. So it's possible that he could commute uh, to life without parole, not only Dunlap's sentence – but the sentences of other the other two men who are on death row – by the way, all three of these men on death row in Colorado are all young African-Americans and they all went to the same high school. Hmm. So there's a little bit of a regional bias uh, in death sentencing in Colorado.
0: And there have been charges that racism accounts for the disproportionate number of African-Americans on death row in general. Um, and um, – blacks account for only um, 5% of the state's population, and yet we have three black people on death row, right. the only folks on death row. How do you see race as playing into the death penalty here?
4: Well, a couple of things. First of all, when Hickenlooper uh, issued the temporary reprieve for Nathan Dunlap, he had in his hands information on about 30 other cases where there were also th- three or four or even more victims where the death penalty was not imposed. So there's a question of arbitrariness there. Secondly, our research indicates that in Colorado, uh, race of defendant does play a little bit of a role, but it's mostly race of victim. Very few people are sentenced to death uh, for killing uh, or uh, ver- very few pe- in very few cases where an African-American is murdered is the death penalty sought. Hmm. Now, two of the three people on death row in Colorado were convicted of killing an African-American couple. But those are very rare. Uh, uh, Since 1980 in Colorado, the death penalty has been sought about 130 times and almost all those cases involved a white victim.
0: Hmm. Um, as part of your research on the death penalty, you spent the night with a man um, who was executed, I believe, the next day. What was that experience like? Uh,
4: I spent uh, 20, 22 years at the University of Florida before coming to, uh, before coming to Boulder in 2001 and uh although i went to Colorado, I went to Florida to teach in the medical school, I quickly became involved and interested in death penalty work so uh, I, I actually spent I went through last visits with fifty inmates on the night before they were executed and uh, sometimes the family of the inmate would stay with me uh, in my home in Gainesville. Uh, often I would bring messages back and forth from the attorney to the inmate and Uh, several times actually uh, arranged funerals. So I've been up to my ears with uh, that type of work.
0: What was your most memorable um, of those times you spent with folks? Uh,
4: I think I had PTSD in some of these cases. Probably the most memorable was Ted Bundy. Uh, When he was executed in 1989, uh, his family was still in Washington State. And actually, his ashes uh, were in my closet for six months after he was executed, which kind of is a macabre story. But uh, dealing with that and all the hatred and national publicity was a pretty horrible time, not only for the families of the victims, but for the uh, people who were working directly on the
0: Bundy case. And I want to say a full discretion. You've said in the past that you have Grave concerns about the death penalty.
4: Yes. When I began doing this work in the 1970s, I didn't. I didn't know anything about it. But my first research project was on race and the second was about erroneous convictions. And after getting the results from that research, I believe my own results. And uh, I believe that the death penalty is making godlike decisions without godlike accuracy.
0: One story you write about uh, was the execution of Joe Arity in 1936. He was intellectually disabled and had an IQ of 46. And the warden at the prison where he was being held called him the happiest man on death row. Um, and he and the warden actually developed a relationship. What was the nature of the case? Uh, Joe, we
4: we did find a relative, Joe Aride is how it's pronounced. Okay. Uh, And he was executed in 1939 despite a very low IQ and granted a complete posthumous pardon by Governor Ritter in 2011. So it's a story of an erroneous execution.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Michael Radlett is chair of the sociology department at CU Boulder. He's done extensive research on capital punishment. His new book is The History of the Death Penalty in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A performance had the judges and audience of NBC's America's Got Talent on their feet earlier this month.
5: But I know one day I'll get through and I'll take my place again if I would try.
0: that singer Mandy Harvey with her original song, Try. Harvey, who moved from Colorado to Florida, is deaf. She lost her hearing at 18 due to a connective tissue disorder. Harvey had to learn to feel the music literally. She feels drums through the floor, bass through her chest. America's Got Talent judge Simon Caldwell said her performance was amazing.
6: Honestly, I never think I'm going to be surprised or amazed by people. And then you turn up. And with, I mean, just the fact that you are you, but it was your voice, your tone. The song was beautiful. Congratulations. You are straight through to the live shows. (laughs)
0: Let's listen back to our conversation with Harvey in 2010. She told my colleague Ryan Warner that she's loved singing since she was a little kid.
5: Yeah, I actually started performing when I was four and never stopped after that, so...
0: Performing what at, at um, age four?
5: Well, I actually started, you know, those uh, old church pageants during Christmas time, so I got up there and I put on my little star suit and and I had lines and stuff like that, so I was up on stage by that time, and, then, and ever since then I started joining choirs and whatnot, but um, I guess my overall passion for music really blew up in high school. I was in three or four different choirs at the same time, plus musicals, plus drama, plus anything I could get my hand on, so.
6: Things changed um, when you turned 18. Yeah. What happened?
5: I went to CSU for vocal music education, and... Pretty quickly after I'd started, about a month in, is when I started noticing I couldn't understand my teachers very well. So I kept trying to deny it and, and move up closer and, and figure out a way to understand them. But it got to a point where I was falling behind in my classes. And so I talked to my mom. And this has always been like a an internal fear since I've had hearing issues all my life and surgeries all my life. I've always had this like back thought of what if one day I just it all goes away so I taught my mom and and we went and we saw an audiologist and I'd lost a a good chunk and so they told us to come back and so we went back the next month and it had dropped a little bit more and uh, it was just a really weird experience because you go in with this hope that, oh, maybe I just have a severe ear infection or something like that. It's all going to go away. And then they're just like, yep, you need hearing aids, slap you on the butt and head out the door, you know. So um, by spring of uh, 2007, I had already been fitted for hearing aids. And the next month after that, they weren't helpful anymore. Once you hit a certain point, the only thing that is, uh, made louder is just white noise so you walk around and tiny little things are blown out of proportion but it doesn't make any sense so it's more like and that's all you get. So I just stopped wearing them and then after a while they just kind of said that's where you're going to go. So,
6: Is there a track on the CD that it all reflects this time in your life?
5: Mm, Not one that reflects everything that's going on in my life. The The song that um, is more about the loss of my hearing would be I Won't Cry, which is actually a song written by a friend of mine named Donna, and it's about her relationship and and how it kind of fell apart, and so I found a lot of connection to it because it was just a loss for me. It wasn't necessarily a person, but it was just a loss.
6: determined to stick with music
5: i actually gave up on music for about a year i left the school and i didn't have much else to do so i moved in back with my parents which is always a humiliating thing when you're 18 19 years old hey folks but um after after about a year my dad and i were playing on the guitar and that was something that i was connected with him with so we were playing and he's like you should learn this song and and i did and and it was this uh epiphany moment of wait a second I can still do this it's not what I was thinking it would be and it's not exactly as fun as I thought it would be but I can still do this and then I kind of got this mad rush of I can steal my identity back somehow so I spent a while trying to wrap my head around the idea of singing without having any thing to go off of other than my head which is scary
6: yeah, because uh, singing is is so much about the feedback you get from yourself.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's not like a, a piano that you can plunk any note you want, and you know that it's going to turn out right unless the piano is wickedly out of tune. But it's not like that. There's no buttons that you push that 100% will always be there. It's it's all based on muscle memory and in your head. and. And without being able to hear it, you don't have that confirmation that you're doing it
6: right. Did you get in touch with someone who helped you develop your vocal abilities?
5: I actually got involved with Cynthia Vaughn. She was my old vocal coach from when I was in high school. She was also one of my teachers from when I was at CSU. And she basically helped me get my confidence back and uh, pointed me towards... Mark Sloniker, who's the pianist at Jay's Bistro that I play with every week, and she she didn't really help me find my voice necessarily, but it was more like, "Yeah, you're doing it right. Try this. Yeah, you're doing that right. Try this."
6: You mentioned Mark Sloniker mm-hmm. on piano on the the new CD as well.
5: Yes, he's on both albums actually.
6: And the new CD is called "After You're Gone." You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, the jazz singer and musician Mandy Harvey is our guest. Okay, we've, we've kind of made a big deal of the deaf thing, right? Right. Yeah. Should we? <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, it's one of those things that it gives a lot of people hope, and it's, it's a marker for someone who says, oh, well, I lost my dreams, and they're like, "Whoa, well, no, I just have to do my dreams a little bit differently, but I don't know, I, if I can be helpful... To somebody with going through that experience, I would love to do that. But at the same time, I just i am following my passion, and I'd rather have my life be focused around my passion instead of my inabilities.
6: And I understand that at many shows, I mean, you don't even make reference to this.
5: Right. I don't. I mean, I always sign when I sing, but um, most people, if they don't know me, they come in and they're like, oh, wow, she can sign. That's really pretty. It's almost like dancing. And then they leave, and they never know. It's not like I start, oh, yes, hello, my name is Mandy, and I am deaf. Let me blow your mind with my abilities.
6: <laughs> Did you consider doing that? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I will say, that's a compelling act, right? I mean, not a, not everyone's got it, you know?
5: Yeah, but then you, get, then you get those people who are like, all right, blow my mind. I'd rather do it. If I was going to be that much of a ham, I'd do it at the very end. So they're sitting there, and they're like, wow. You're a great singer. Oh, by the way. And then they're like, <gasps> you know, that like, <laughs> double take look. That would be the best.
6: Well, Mandy Harvey, let's wrap up with one last song. It's called With You.
5: Right. The one that I wrote with Mark Saloniker.
6: Talk a, talk a little bit about it.
5: That one actually has a very specific uh, feeling and, and meaning behind it. When I was growing up, there were these two older couples who were across the street. And one of them, Uh, I was really close with it was a colonel and his wife and he had been uh, like a colonel of some sort in World War II and uh, he was telling me all of his war stories I was like his best buddy and we would play chess every day but he was telling me that when he came back from the war that he had a hard time communicating with his wife and so they spent a good year not ever really talking at all And so one day he got fed up with it, and he grabbed her hand, they just went walking, and they walked for miles and miles and miles until they just broke the silence and and started communicating again and laughing again and remembering all their old jokes again because it was just so hard having somebody who went through what he had gone through to be able to express that to his wife who was scared enough and didn't really want to know. We always promise to smile to each other We always promised to laugh with each other We always promised to make the best of everything We didn't want to get stuck in the silence We didn't want to shut down for bad weather We only wanted to find eternal spring the song has a very specific beat to it, and it's supposed to feel like walking. And it's also a very easy beat to understand for um, a lot of my friends who are hard of hearing or deaf. Um, but it's it's just about getting past the, the weirdness that had happened and going back to being best friends. We could be happy no, I knew them
6: they can right now. Mandy Harvey, thank you for being with us.
5: Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. I had such a fun time.
0: Mandy Harvey with Ryan Warner in 2010. This is CPR's Colorado Matters.